0: We're in First Peter chapter 1 and actually tonight we're just going to be looking at the first two verses of the book uh, and then next week we're going to dive into a lot of what we just had read to us uh, and it might seem odd to start with two verses but hopefully by the end of this you'll uh, understand. But uh, first, before we get into that, I wanted to start with a little story. Uh, who here is aware of a man, he's not around these days, whose name was William Tyndale? A oh, show of hands, okay? Who's heard of William Tyndale? Okay, who can, who can picture what they think William Tyndale looked like? Anyone? Well, he was burnt. Yeah, I can well, not then. see him on a stake. What? Burn, burn. Okay, but, but, fun fact. If you could picture a picture of William Tyndale's face, the very high probability is you'd be wrong, because he never had an official portrait made. There was never a painting made of William Tyndale in the life of William Tyndale by anyone who knew William Tyndale. Now, if you don't know who he was, William Tyndale was one of the first translators of the Bible into English. In fact, he was the first translator from the original texts of the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible into English. And he understood his identity in Christ. He understood that in this world, he could not expect to have be treated like this was his home. He understood that he could not expect to be loved by the world because he was loved by God instead. Uh, At 30 years of age, he had been petitioning the church to allow an English translation, a full English, English translation of the Bible, and he'd been told by the Archbishop of London, I believe, that there was no place for that because it was a dangerous thing to do. And he reached the conclusion that there was nowhere in all of England that, he, that, that this was a welcome work, that he would not be able to do this within his nation. And so he left England, and for 12 years, he was on the run across Europe. He went from city to city, hiding, translating, and printing Bibles. <laughs> He released a few different editions of his New Testament and by the end he had learnt biblical Hebrew from scratch and, and, and that's not like it is these days. There aren't, weren't colleges then to learn it at. He had to find places that were extremely rare to learn this language and then translate the Bible into English from it and he had uh, illegally transported thousands of Bibles into England in their native language. He was genuinely hated by the authorities in his day. Sir Thomas More, um, you might have seen him kind of deified a bit in the film A Man for All Seasons, if you're old enough for that one. Uh, he described him in this way. He was the, the Lord High Chancellor of England at the time. He was, William Tyndale is the captain of English heretics, a hellhound in the, of the devil, uh, kennel of the devil, a new Judas worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, an idolater and devil worshipper, a beast, and I love this one, a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth cometh a filthy foam. I'm not even sure what he means by that, but there it is. He wasn't a fan of him. William Tyndale was hunted by spies, by soldiers, by friars and by priests. Eventually he was caught by a man posing to be his friend who was being paid off by the English authorities who led him into a dark alley and had him mugged and taken back to England. Having translated so many texts and having had so many Bibles moved into England, William Tyndale was kept in a prison for a year and a half where he kept writing, not translating, he wasn't allowed access to that, and then he was killed uh, fairly exorbitantly by hanging, then burning, then exploding. William Tyndale was the cause of the existence of every English Bible that we have today. God worked an amazing work through this man's life, and it was worked because he understood who he was in Jesus, that he was a man who lived in this world, but this world wasn't his home. His hope was in a world to come. And so I think that's just a wonderful example as we step into this series of a man who lived with hope in a world that wasn't his home. William Tyndale knew who he was. So like I said, tonight we're going to look at just the first two verses of the book of 1 Peter. If you haven't got a Bible open, do it. Uh, It's a a good idea. Uh, Although it might seem strange to spend a whole night uh, looking at just two verses, Peter's greeting here, I've decided to do this for two really big reasons. One, these two verses set the tone for this whole letter. We're going to spend about 11 weeks in the book of 1 Peter, and these two verses lay the groundwork that he's going to build on for the rest of this book. They're not just some trivial greeting, although we are so tempted when we read these letters to skip over these bits. Second, the content of these two verses, along with the content of the whole book, are seriously relevant for us today. They, They are words that we need to understand, just as much as the readers in the day of Peter needed to understand them. Uh, at the, as, the, as the name suggests, First Peter is written uh, by Peter. Uh, he introduces himself in the, uh, the first line by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I've run into a slight issue here. I think I'm missing a page. This doesn't matter. It wasn't anything important. I'm going to improv it and find it when we get up to it anyway, but uh, we'll do it at a relevant moment. Um, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, if you don't know who this guy is, then just briefly, Peter was one of the earliest and closest followers of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Before the cross, Peter uh, stood out among the 12 close disciples of Jesus. Uh, Often by brashly putting his foot in it, right? Uh, The the phrase, get behind me Satan, was pointed at Peter at once by Jesus. (laughs) He famously denied Jesus on the night before Jesus died. And he wept bitterly for his own failure. And yet, after the resurrection, Peter was accepted back in fully by the risen Jesus. And he went on, empowered now by the Spirit of God, to be a key leader in the early church. He preached sermons which God used to convert thousands in a single day. He would go on to suffer for Jesus, being jailed in Acts chapter 12, but continuing to trust in God through the ordeal. And we know from history that he eventually would die for his faith. In this opening, he reminds them that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle was a specific role, particularly how Peter's using that word here. Not the same as being a disciple. We're all disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus. The way Peter's using this word apostle refers to a special role in the early church, a group of specially sent followers. What the word means is sent one. Followers of Jesus who had authority to lead the church as a whole. So this isn't just some guy writing This isn't some distant theologian writing either who has considered this from the comfort of his armchair. This is a man who walked with Jesus, is authoritatively sent by Jesus, and has bled for and been persecuted for his faith. So the original readers would have seen this letter as carrying the authority of Jesus because it is spoken by Peter. And we should sit up and listen when we hear that, right? And it's a good thing that Peter carried such experience and authority because that is exactly what was needed by the churches that he was writing to. Uh, Peter states that he is writing to the churches in five regions. i um, got a slide for that. Where do I put the clicky? This is what happens. <laughs> So he's riding to the churches in five regions to uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that might not sound like such a big list, but this is just a huge region. It's basically what we call Turkey today uh, that he's referring to. They're not just cities. These These are regional areas, many of which are significant New Testament areas, places with cities that we'd recognize like Ephesus and Colossae and Pisidian Antioch, and all of the seven churches of Revelation fit into these regions. And from the the content of the letter, we gain the impression of the struggle that these churches were going through at the time. In chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes that they uh, will be grieved by various trials. We heard that read out just before. In chapter 3, he encourages them, suffer for righteousness' sake. And then he holds out Jesus and he says, Christ also suffered in 318. In four, verse one he says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And in four verse twelve he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So it seems that they were suffering churches. Churches that were beginning to see persecution. And I say beginning because we get this impression in a number of those verses uh, that Peter seems to be addressing persecution that has begun, but that is expected to get worse. He says things like, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. He speaks of being prepared or even armed for suffering that's coming in the future, not in a, in a literal sense armed, but with a certain way of thinking. So we get this picture of a large number of churches that are beginning to suffer for their faith. Perhaps they're be, they're, uh, being a Christian was leading to some levels of social exclusion. Maybe it was a lower chance of finding work or a lower esteem in society or there was this distinct feel that that you were marginalised and that this was going to get worse before it got better. And history tells us that it did. So this is a large number of churches that needed to hear from an authoritative, experienced voice representing their leader, Jesus, who will teach them how to live in such times as these. And so Peter writes this book to encourage and exhort them in how they are to live when society holds them at arm's length, when the world around them marginalises them, when they are insulted and treated as fools because of their faith. You're starting to see why I think this is relevant for us, why this is an exciting book for us to step into. We live in a society that is... Be- beginning to hold us at arm's length in a way that hadn't been true maybe 20 years ago. From the first verse, Peter addresses us in our needs. After introducing himself, he writes these words, uh, and I'm going to do this from the ESV. Uh, Dad was from the NIV. You get the same gist from both. Uh, He writes, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, now that those two words there, elect exiles. What was it in yours? But then he said strangers at the start. Like they put a, a full stop there, didn't they? Um, in the Greek, this is this is one flow here. You get elect, uh, chosen, and strangers, elect, and exiles. Um, elect exiles of the dispersion could mean two things. Um, Firstly, it could be speaking to Jews specifically, Um, so this is a phrase that we see applied in the Old Testament to the Jews who were dispersed as exiles outside of the land of Israel. Uh, And so he could be saying this to Jewish Christians in particular, but the other option is that he's speaking to Christians, all Christians, and he's using this Old Testament imagery as a metaphor for our situation in this world. He's using the idea of us as chosen but strangers to express the situation that we are in as Christians. In fact, he's drawing on it and saying, this this image that we have in the Old Testament points to you. And it's important that we understand which of those two options it is, right? Because that changes how we read this entire book. If 1 Peter is written to the Jewish Christians only, that really limits how applicable this is to you and me. Raise your hand if you're Jewish, right? I, I, I'm not. I'm. <laughs> um. <laughs> If that's the case, then it seems that he starts the book off on the note, not of the strangeness and the foreignness of God's people in this world because of their citizenship in the new heavens and new earth, but on their strangeness outside of the ethnic people of Judea. On the other hand, if he's speaking to Christians, all Christians, and is using the idea of exiles of dispersion as a metaphor, then this book is highly relevant to us. It speaks into our situation because it speaks of how we are to live as people who, like Paul says in Philippians 3.20, have a citizenship in heaven and are waiting for the return of our Saviour. You may have already gathered, I think it's option B. I think it's the second one. I believe that is, that is the right reading of this, uh, not without reason. Uh, the rest of the book really does nail it in for me as, as how this is to be understood. I think it makes sense to see it as Gentile and Jew believers that he's speaking to. For instance, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, you'll see he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Jews in some sense were formerly ignorant, but th- that seems like much clearer language for Paul to apply to Gentile Christians primarily, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. In 4 verse 3, he says uh, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And, and at first we might go, well, if he said the past is for what the Gentiles want to do, it seems like he's talking to Jews, except for why would the Jews have been these people? It seems like he must be speaking to Gentiles who have come out of being like the Gentiles that they were. You, we can keep going. There's, there's loads of examples in here. In, in one i I'll give one more, to 19, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So see, he brings in that concept again of exile there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And there he connects this idea of the exile that he's speaking about with the ransoming out of sin by the precious blood of Jesus. And so I think, rightly, I'd say that he's speaking to all of us here. He's speaking to Christians. Thus Jews and Gentiles, all Christians. But now we can see that when he calls them elect exiles... He's making a big statement, isn't he? He isn't just specifying something about where they live in relation to Judea. He's addressing them with their true identity as the church. They and we, if you're a Christian, are elect, meaning chosen, highlighting our identity and relationship to God. If you are a Christian, if you have believed in Jesus, then you are a part of God's chosen people. In fact, in chapter 2, Peter will apply that phrase to us when he says, you are a chosen race, in perhaps the most famous words of this book. He's not speaking ethnically there, but referring to us as the chosen people of God from all of the earth From all of the peoples of the earth. If you have believed and been saved, then you have been chosen by God. He chose you based on no merit of your own. Verse three will make that clear when we get up to it. He's going to say, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. It's based on mercy, not your goodness. And what that mercy entails well, that's what we're going to get to uh, when we look at that next week. Um, but the short version is that we receive hope. Certain undefeatable hope. Grounded in the past work of Jesus, active in our lives in the present and waiting to be uh, presented to us in fullness when Jesus returns. And if you want to hear more about that, feel free to come back next, next week. Uh, Uh, The other side of the coin, then, is that we are exiles. That's what we've seen, isn't it? We're, We're foreign to the world. God's chosen people, because they are chosen, will be foreign, will be at arm's length, will be at odds with the world around them, different to the world, hence the name of this series, and therefore treated as different by the world. Have you ever been in a context like that? Where you're, I'm not speaking about your Christian difference here. Have have you ever been a foreigner? Get an idea of this. I think it helps to know that. Like, have you ever been in a country where you were treated as a foreigner? I haven't. Uh, I haven't lived as a foreigner in another nation, but there was this one time uh, when we went and visited uh, my sister and her husband and their son when they were living in East Arnhem Land uh, in a little community called Maparoo. It's like 100 to 150 people. And in that community, it was Jess, Dean, Will, that's their family, and what's the name of the, the principal of the local school? And that was the white community there. And then there was 100 to 150 Aboriginal people who were not just ethnically Aboriginal, but we're living in a a fairly culturally, traditionally culturally Aboriginal way. And so when we went to visit, we stuck out a bit, we were pretty noteworthy for being different and weird. I mean, I'm a bit weird all of the time, but there it was was a particularly appreciable. Um, and really is, it's in the middle of nowhere, this place. Like, you either have to drive four-wheel drive for a very long time to get there from Darwin, and for a significant number of months of the year that's not even a possibility, because of the rivers that flow at some points of the year. You have to fly twice. You have to fly to an island and then fly in an even smaller plane to the small airstrip there to get there. And um, it it just you stand out like a sore thumb. You're different. You're culturally different. You appear different. Your values are different to the people around you. I remember one time we were in a car with Jess and Dean and and an probably mid 40s Aboriginal lady from the community there, and and I just stood out as different to her because uh, we were going to the beach, and I said because I don't hang out at the top end very much, I said. Are there going to be crocodiles at the beach? And and she said, uh, he, 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 crocodiles, and that was all she said. And I still, to this day, have no idea what she meant. Uh, I still, I didn't go swimming. Tell you that. Uh, but it is, and this is what this is like. The picture of what Peter's giving us here. Christians are different to the world around them. We are strangers in the world around us. It doesn't mean that we separate ourselves from the world around us. But we have a different orientating factor in our lives, and that is that we are chosen by God. And so the words, elect exiles, highlight that those who are chosen by God to be his people will live as exiles, will live as strangers in this world. And in verse 2, Peter emphasises our identity as chosen foreigners in these three ways. He writes, to those who are elect exiles, or chosen foreigners of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. Three phrases about our identity as chosen foreigners, each of them grounding us in the action of God, giving us the the origin, the action, and the result of our identity as chosen foreigners. First, we're chosen foreigners according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our chosen foreigner identity has the solid origin of the foreknowledge of God. Now, we've looked at the foreknowledge of God fairly recently, so I won't hammer this for too long. God the Father foreknew you if you have believed in Him, and therefore you are foreign to the world. Uh, That foreknowledge isn't just foreknowing in the sense of being aware of you beforehand. God foreknew everyone in that way, we know. But it's the sense of God forechose you. We see it similarly in passages like uh, Acts 2.23, which says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he connects the plan of God to the foreknowledge of God. In Romans 11, he writes, God has not rejected those whom he foreknew. And if he was just talking about awareness of, that would be really weird, right? Because he's clearly not speaking about everyone there. So this carries the weight of having been forechosen. Uh, It is the the same choosing that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 1 when he says that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. And so here Peter is saying, how were you chosen? You are chosen, you are elect by God the Father in eternity past. You were selected according to his gracious will, so you are different. Isn't that breathtaking? Breathtaking. God chose you. Before there was a world, he looked forward and said, Him, her. And then our identity as chosen foreigners is in the sanctification of the Spirit. God, the Spirit, has sanctified and is sanctifying you. So you will be different to those who are not sanctified and not being sanctified. Sanctification is a big word. Uh <laughs> It, it means to be set apart or to be made holy. It's kind of the more official version of my own word, holified. Uh, John or Peter, you choose. Uh, and here it's talking about both the act, uh, both sorry, the fact that as Christians we have been set apart by the Spirit when we were saved and the fact that we are being being set apart, we are being made holy through this life. Uh, we are being changed in this life. He's working to transform us and make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So in the sanctification of the Spirit captures what's happening to us right now in this world. As chosen foreigners, we are blessed and joyful in the fact that God has set us apart and we suffer difficult things, not purposelessly, not pointlessly, but purposefully. Because the Spirit is transforming us through what's happening. And third, the purpose of our identity as chosen foreigners is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, that is admittedly probably the most confusing of these three things, right? Uh, our identity is for obedience to Jesus, that's fairly clear. Uh, we are. O- obedience means that we are to be transformed, we are being transformed to be the way that God intended us to be, to be more like Jesus, that we'd live out our identity as chosen by Him. Uh, but the difficult one, right, is sprinkling with His blood. That's, that's an odd thing to come in the first two verses of a book. Sprinkling with blood is this Old Testament image. It's, a, it's a, an odd mixture of gore and beauty. <laughs> Uh, It comes up in a couple of places, but I think the the clearest one, the most significant one here, is when God's covenant with the people of Israel is made. Uh, In in Exodus chapter 24, Moses read out the covenant to the people. They're they're before Mount Sinai. Uh, He reads out the covenant, that that they are joining with God in covenant. And then he throws the blood of the Lamb on them and covers the people, like, like sprinkles it on all of the people. And, and he signifies thereby that they had entered this covenant, that they are God's people now. And in the new covenant under Jesus, we find out that that was an image of how we are washed with the blood of Jesus from all of our sin and brought into community with God, brought into covenant community with God. It seems significant then that just later in this chapter, in verse 18 and 19, Peter says that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your fathers with the precious blood of Jesus. That's helpful in understanding what's happening here because if the blood of Jesus is what ransoms us, not just from our past but from our ways, then obedience is achieved by the blood of Jesus. So it's about entering the community of God's people and being made to be like one of God's people. And so it seems that what Peter's saying is that the purpose for which we are elect exiles is that the powerful blood of Jesus is making us obedient. It's making us like Jesus day by day in the life we live now. And don't miss it. There's something very significant that's happened in, in the whole of verse 2 there, right? God the Father has foreknown us. God the Spirit is setting us apart. God the Son is transforming us for obedience. He calls on the entire trinity of God at the very start of this book as the establishing and maintaining power of our identity as chosen foreigners. And that truth, that God has done it and is doing it, is what empowers us to live out that identity. Being God's people necessarily means that you no longer belong to this world. You're a stranger to this world. You see every aspect of who you are differently. Your past origin is in God's choosing of you. Your current state is one who has been set apart by God the Spirit. Your purpose is transformation into an obedient child of God only by the power of the blood of Jesus. Now, why is that important? I mean, we've talked facts a lot tonight, let's be honest, I I see a few of you struggling a bit with the number of just wordinesses that are happening here, that's not a word. Uh, (laughs) When we don't understand our identity as God's chosen foreign people in this world, we fail to live as them, and we fail to live out the reality of who we are, and, and, and frankly we become dangerous. In the, in the 1930s, right, uh, 90-something percent of Germany identified as Christian. La- large majority Protestant Christian, right? We can't throw this one on the Catholics, uh, much as I might try. But um, what happened in the 1930s in Germany? The National Socialist Party rose to power, the Nazis. Adolf Hitler came to power, and he promised the church protection and esteem from the government and most of the church, by a large, large majority, the church bought it. They sought to be at home in this world. They sought to have prestige in this world and they refused to live as foreigners to this world and, and the results were horrendous, right? I don't need to tell you what happened. Are we happy as Christians to live in the pain and the joy of obeying Jesus and disobeying the world? We need to be. Another way to look at it is that when, when push comes to shove, when, when Christians uh, don't live like they're chosen foreigners in the world, we find out who the Christians are in some ways. And, and, and that, that's a little bit harsh, and that's a little bit more black and white than it is, you know. Uh, but, but really, we're called to live like our home isn't this place. And that's important. That's, that's, that's practical. That's every day. But when the church finds its identity in God, in the gospel, of our chosenness by God bought by the blood of Jesus, you know, that, that is where we see some of the most amazing periods of history that have ever happened. When our hope and our home isn't here, it's up there, it's where Jesus is, it's where well, he comes back for us. That's where we see William Tyndale's happen and George Whitfield's and John Wesley's and whoever you want, you know. That's when we see and 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 Thousands and millions of people hear the word of God and are saved. There's power when the church understands that we are foreigners in this world, but we don't care because we're chosen by God. Now, when, when William Tyndale died, tied to a stake, about to be strangled, he uh he prayed, purportedly prayed one last prayer, he said, God, open the eyes of the King of England. Faithful to the end, he wanted his people to hear the Word of God more than anything else. And so he wanted the King to allow the translation of the Bible and miraculously in the following years, the King of England did. And some, something like 86% of the New Testament that they used as the first authorised translation, and something like 76% of the Old Testament that they used were from William Tyndale's work. And God used that powerfully. He used a man who understood his identity powerfully. So we're left with one very significant question, which is, what does it look like now for us? Okay. How does our chosen identity work out in our lives, in the day-to-day, in the, in the bits and pieces, in the, the lives of people who struggle, people who live uh, in a nation which is not, by and large, obedient to God, people who live in an age of changing cultural values, people who live in complex relationships and are increasingly facing a society that does not like Jesus or follow him? How does that look? And, and, and that's a great question, and the answer is that's the rest of 1 Peter. <laughs> um, the rest of this letter is primarily concerned with, with taking our gospel identity as chosen foreigners and showing us the fullness of what it means to live it out today, showing us how to live in the truth of who we are now.